Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to episode one of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 weeks. A lot like a Marvel comic, our episode numbering is a little bit misleading since this is actually our second episode. If you go to our website, goshgollywow.com or wherever you get your podcasts, you'll find an episode zero in which we discuss the origins of Excalibur, the origins of this pod, and the origins of us, your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts. We also did a deep dive into the story that introduced Excalibur, Excalibur Special Edition Volume 1 number one, otherwise known as Excalibur, the sword is drawn. You don't have to listen to that episode before listening to this one. You can just jump right in here. But because I think it's a fabulous episode and because it does a great job of setting up what we do on this pod, I do encourage you to check it out at your leisure. This week in episode one, we are looking at Excalibur number one, originally published in October 1988. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on pencils and plotting, Paul Neary on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Tom Orzachowski on lettering, and Anne Nascenti and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Nobody shall have the sword. Nobody shall wield Excalibur but me! We're going to have frequent guests on the pod, but for the first few episodes, we're sticking with the core team. We'll start by quickly introducing ourselves and then get into our analysis of this week's issue. Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a talker, writer, maker, occasional university instructor, expert somewhat in super sex, which is the title of my recent book anthology about superhero sexuality, and of course, Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. I am joined by... Hi, I'm, I'm Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. I am a... PhD candidate at the University of Duquesne and a podcaster, writer, artist, photographer, and former professional wrestler. I've had a lot of jobs, but um, <laughs> but um, I you know I, I I read funny books for a living and I dissect them and talk about a lot of the same stuff that Anna does. And so I'm I'm really excited to talk about one of my favorite series here. Thanks, Mav and Andrew. Go ahead. Hey, I'm Andrew. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University at the campus of the University of Waterloo. Uh, and I'm also the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a big academic study on Chris Claremont's work. So feeling right at home talking about Excalibur. And as we discussed in episode zero, responsible for getting me back on the X-Men train. <laughs> Obviously, we encourage our listeners to check out Claremont Run. So I'm hoping that we'll get listeners reading along with the pod. And of course, we've been posting lots of images from the comics that we're reading to Twitter and to our webpage. But for those of you who may not have read this particular comic or maybe haven't read it in a while, perhaps not since 1988, uh, we'll kick things off with just some brief plot summary to get us all situated and then get into our analysis. So Excalibur number one opens at a deserted factory complex near the ominously named Loch Demon in the Scottish Highlands, which is not a real place. I looked it up, was very disappointed. There, Tweedledope of the group of villains known as the Crazy Gang is messing around with a gadget that looks sort of like a robot head. He pushes some food garbage and electronics into it, shuts its mouth and shakes it, but abandons the head just before it pings to life. Mysterious. Meanwhile, in London, Shadowcat, aka Kitty Pride, Phoenix, aka Rachel Summers, and Captain Britain, aka Brian Braddock, are dealing with a hostage situation that nearly goes off the rails when Rachel is momentarily taken down by a power powerful bolt of psychic energy. Kitty proves her resourcefulness by impersonating a ghost to distract the hostage takers long enough for Rachel to recover and hurl them all against the wall in a surge of fiery energy that somehow doesn't kill them, but regardless, it <laughs> saves the day. So while the hostage situation is going on, the police officer who's been supervising Shadowcat and Phoenix gets devoured by a being known as a war wolf. Basically, a shiny metallic wolf-type creature from another dimension, a place known as Mojo 
Mojo World. The werewolves have been after Rachel since the sword is drawn because she escaped from Mojo World and they are trying to get her back. From the police officer getting devoured, we learn that werewolves steal life energy and leave behind floppy human skins complete with clothes that they then wear to disguise themselves as humans and consume more victims. From there, we cut to Brian Braddock's home at One Merlin Muse, where Rachel experiences another debilitating psychic shock when a werewolf steals another skin, and Kitty is seen working on an electronic device that she mysteriously keeps hidden from Brian. Elsewhere, Brian's lady Megan is showing Nightcrawler, aka Kurt Wagner, around the lighthouse that would become Excalibur's base of operations. In scenes that take place at the lighthouse and at Merlin Muse, <clears throat> Kurt is disappointed that the enormous round bed isn't for him, gets compared to Joan Collins when <laughs> Megan interrupts him in the bath, walks around in a short robe for a while, drinking a hot chocolate, and discovers what seems to be a portal to another dimension in the basement of the lighthouse. Though when Megan investigates the portal, it seems to be missing. While all of these things are going on, we see Brian reconnecting with his old college flame, Courtney Ross, now a stunning platinum blonde bank manager, about an affair he wants to begin with her bank. Rachel also reconnects with a truly despicable man who works for Courtney and was also present at the hostage crisis named Nigel Frobisher. He sexually harasses her and she puts him in his place. Nigel will become a strangely important character in future issues. The issue concludes with Kitty using the doppelganger module device she created with the aid of some henna and very tight clothes to impersonate Rachel in an effort to draw the werewolves out of hiding. She enacts this plan without telling anyone, which of course gets her into trouble. When Kitty encounters the werewolves, her phasing powers fritz out and she is taken hostage. Rachel and Kurt try to save her to no avail. In the final panel, the team admits they're in a race against time to get Kitty back before she's turned into a werewolf. As that summary suggests, this is a very <laughs> packed issue. A lot happens in this issue. Most of the early issues of Excalibur, I'd argue, are very dense, but this one perhaps in particular. Um, I thought we'd just start with some first impressions, sort of things that stood out to us. I thought it'd be interesting, like, if we actually, if any of us actually had a memory of reading this issue for the first time. Like, Mav, I know you read this yeah. series from the beginning. When it so came do you out. remember? Do you remember reading this for the first time? It was a lot. <laughs> it was really a lot because we talked about on the on our episode zero, we talked about the in media res of this of this series and uh swords drawn tries to do that episode i mean issue one doesn't so much there's a lot of attempting to introduce you to these characters and like give you a little bit of backstory of you know they have conversations that don't really make sense where you know because they all know each other but there there's a little bit of talking when they first you know well you know here are these two teenagers and one has psychic powers and the other can walk through walls you know there's a little mm -hmm. bit of that going on that like this is not how people talk but to give you sort of a, you know, hey, hey, reader, if you're new to this, this is who all the principal characters are. So you've got that. But also there is if you are if you're 14 year old me who does not have access to the British comics yet and does not know that much about um, about Captain Britain's backstory. I know Megan's a main character from the from the sword is drawn. But what's a Tweedledope? Um, who is Die mm -hmm. Thomas? Like there's a lot that's just kind of dropped on you with no real explanation. And then you have to get to all the plot. They're in like six different locations in this book. They just move around and around. The Tweedledope thing is the first two pages. So, you know, you're dropped in with this character you know nothing about. He's playing with this robot. They go through two pages of it, and then he leaves, and we don't mention it again. It's just gone. So mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it was a lot at that at that time particularly given where storytelling was in other stories x-men stories which is you know how i got into this were claremont used a very slow style there you know it, there, there was a lot of build build that went methodically almost and excalibur is just like constant i don't want to say action because there's a lot of them talking but it's constant moving around from place to place and things just happening so quickly that it was sort of you know you needed like training wheels to like learn how to read how, yeah. you know, how, to, how to read it <laughs> and it gets it gets even more hectic around issue you know issue seven or eight um so the, you know I, I sort of developed the ability to read to read it correctly over time but for this first Ooh. issue it was a lot yeah i like that that it's sort of training us for how to read this particular series yeah. which i think cross time is going to happen yeah. and you're going to be like whoa what's going on so 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 very early on it's sort of a yes you're going to sometimes you're going to walk through a door in the basement and there's going to be aliens there and just pay attention to it we'll get to it later you know like that. yeah it's just sort of constant sort of tonal shifts and surprises and it just really keeps going out of kind of frenetic pace 
days. What about you, Andrew? Do you have any memories of encountering this the first time? I know you started reading Excalibur at issue number four, right? Yeah, originally. And, and I walked my way back from there. So uh, problematically, I didn't know the sword is drawn was a thing. So mm. when I got Excalibur one, I was like, oh, cool. I've got the start of the story, which is not the case. No, I, I agree with everything Mav is saying. But for me, I think this is actually like fantastically paced. Uh, mm-hmm. like, like it's confusing, obviously, but I think this is where the tonal quality lends itself to the structure. So when we talked about the sword is drawn, we talked about it being very somber. I, I think I compared mm-hmm. it to like a, a grief support group, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, here, the absurdism is immediate. Uh, and you get this element that was actually in Captain Britain mythology through Dave Thorpe's black and white comics, which I don't think I even talked about last class, where just weird random stuff. Oh, just my goodness. Keeps I just have to stop because you just called our last podcast our last class. <laughs> 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 and I thought that was very funny. And I just wanted to remark on it. And I'm so sorry because you're in the middle of saying something awesome. So please continue. No, that's 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 me Freudian slipping. I think it's a good description. I, I do that on my other show too. It's, it's all the time. perfect. It's perfect. Anyway, please continue, Andrew. I'm so sorry. No, no worries. So, so I was going to say that I think the tone shift, because I think we've all identified there's a massive tone shift here. I think that is really useful to Claremont as a writer and Davis as an illustrator, because after a while in Excalibur, you just get this thing in your head where like weird shit's going to happen and you mm-hmm. have to let it go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing that makes it so compelling is like that takes away a lot of the burden uh, of sort of walking through the exposition and getting to a place of comprehension. Instead, you're just accepting absurdity. There is no comprehension to be had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what makes that so cool and so devastatingly effective later on, particularly in Davis's work, is that like all this absurd, weird stuff that you have to let go actually matters and does come up and gets picked up later on. You're like, oh, crap, that thing that I just kind of glanced off actually is deeply important. Uh, to what we're going with. So I, I think it's really an empowering tonal quality that allows for this thing to, again, just have this frantic pace perfectly suited to the MTV generation. It was as a reader, too, at that time, because something... So, again, we talked about this Tweedledope thing. It's two pages, and then it makes no sense. And then when it comes back next issue, and then again, the issue after that, and again, you know, as it starts building, you start, you know, as a reader, you're like, you start putting it together. And then, again, I was 14, but there's an amount of pride of, oh, I get it. Okay, I see, you know, he's doing a thing here. I get what's going on. Oh, where's this going to go now? You know, there's it. There, there's just this ability to sort of build the story, and it, 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 it um, encourages imagination and encourages asking questions. I guess yeah. the best thing I can I can compare it to to you know if we have listeners who have not read it yet when you talk about the absurdity and it's on a different level but it's another British thing the Doctor Who television show there's just a lot of look we're going to drop some stuff here on you we probably referenced it 50 years ago you don't have to go back (laughs) but you know it's going to matter. Just figure it out as you go. There's a lot of that that goes on in this book, which I loved at the time. It was just so different than anything else that, that I was reading back in 1988. Yeah, maybe to give like a, a sort of alternate comparison for something contemporary. I'm like WandaVision episode four just came out. Yes. And I'm mad at it because oh, really? I, I feel it showed its hand. <laughs> it was like, let's explain stuff. And there's two ways you do that. You bring in a scientist or you bring in an investigator. They brought in both. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I was loving the ride. Don't tell me what everything is yet. And Excalibur doesn't do that. And I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned in episode zero about how I specifically was interested in investigating sort of the cult quality of this series. And I think so many of the things that both of you are bringing up in terms of the strategies of engagement here, in terms of the strategies, the encouragement of participation and making connections between things, but also that long form storytelling, which I think we're going to be talking about again and again, that there are so many mysteries brought up here. Right. And mm-hmm. it's just like, I find like sort of the texture of this world sort of immediately fascinating and wanting to spend more time in it yeah yeah for sure well i mean i had sort of a list of prepared questions and stuff but i think maybe we'll talk do you want to just talk about the genre bending first because that's sort of what you're both kind of touching on in your first impressions Mm -hmm. although i suppose i should give my first impression as well which is that essentially i agree with a lot of what you're saying i was very surprised by the density of this issue when i reread it i Mm -hmm. i would have read it the first time digitally and i was kind of going through all of excalibur very quickly so i would have read it for the first time much later than both of you as i discussed in our origins episode i was probably about 27 when i first read it so i was already kind of 
studying comics as an academic to a certain extent. I'd already read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Marvel comics. Um, and that was sort of how I was coming at this series. So I was coming at it from sort of a perspective of somebody who was already studying comics, which is, you know, a particular perspective to be approaching it from. But um, but yeah, even from that, it felt like sort of a breath of fresh air compared to a lot of the other things I'd kind of been reading at that time. And it felt like a very sophisticated comic in the way that it manages all these tonal shifts and manages the sophisticated pacing and doesn't talk down to the reader in terms of just like, no, keep up. We're on to the next thing now. <laughs> and I really like all the things that both of you were kind of saying about that. It felt like it's strange because it's a very silly comic in so many ways. And yet it felt like a very kind of grown up corner of the Marvel universe in some ways. And the more I think about it, the more I'm wondering if it's sort of related to that. I mean, whether we want to call it like complex or, or complicated pacing or sophisticated pacing or whatever, because I think any of those words could apply. I think that that's part of what I'm seeing as kind of the quote unquote maturity of this series in a way. I'm going to be very academic here and, you know, <laughs> total nerd. It is, and I didn't know this word yet in 1988. So th it, it is extremely postmodern in presentation, but yeah. in a, yeah. in a way that is different than the, the, okay, this is late eighties, early nineties, the turn to postmodernity and look it up, you know, <laughs> and, and um, at that point was very cynical and dark in a lot of places. And this is not that. It's not as mm -hmm. meta aware as She-Hulk was, which is another comic I was reading at the time. Mm -hmm. But it is it is very aware of what it's doing. It is very much wanting to comment on the world of X-Men, the world of comics and storytelling and narrative convention. You know, like, why do we drop from one thing to another? Because why does a story have to be linear? And, and why do we have to, like, use conventional structure? That's what everybody else is doing. You know, we're Claremont and Davis. We're going to do what we want. You know, like, there's so much of that going on that is reading it critically now. I see some problems with it, but I it was it was so fresh at the time. And it's hard to like, you know, we've seen other stuff. We've seen your Deadpools, you know, try and like replicate this sort of this sort of format mm -hmm. th that was it was very new at the time. The closest I think that was coming out was um, was the Justice League of America stuff and Justice League Europe, the DC was happening. And because that was irreverent, but it wasn't it wasn't as complex as this was. And I think when you say that it's very adult, you know, we're going to talk. I know, you know, I know you want to talk about a lot of the sexuality that's happening here. That was something I'd not really seen in a mainstream book when I was 14 yet. I'd seen it in, you know, I mean, I'd read Watchmen already and I'd read some indie comics you know, like things that, you know, things that were happening in Mage or Grendel were, you know, much more grown up than what, you know, what Spider-Man's doing. But for a Marvel comic to start hating on this was like very new back then. Yeah, I really want to talk about the scene with Nightcrawler in the bath. I feel like there's like two like turning point scenes for me in terms of like my attraction to that character and they both involve him in the bath and I think that there are like important reasons behind that in terms of some of these themes about sort of maturity and accessibility that we're discussing. So let's talk a little bit about that genre bending. Um, mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit in episode zero that Excalibur is this genre bending series, right? That it combines sort of horror, action, drama sex farce romance sort of all of these different things and we've talked a little bit about this already but like are there specific instances in which we can see it kind of veering from kind of one genre to another do you see it kind of playing out more from one scene to the next scene or do you see the genre bending more playing out even just within scenes that is a good question um <laughs> I, I see it as Ooh, like I've, st I've stumped us. <laughs> I see it as very like selective. So I, I don't know if I would say it shifts so much in between scenes, except maybe when we get to talk about issue two, we can re-bring that up because I think maybe there. But mm -hmm. in this particular issue, it does seem like uh, specific scenes are framed around one specific genre, one specific mm -hmm. like tone for me. But that's maybe a subjective thing. Well. I mean, we talked a little bit about the Tweedle Dope one already, which was the which is the very first thing is when he's you know he's playing with the robot and it's just weird and you know and I don't know that I could I'm trying to put myself in in a mindset of not knowing what's coming. I don't know that I I had a genre for that. It was just weird and bizarre. But then when we move into the story proper, you have Captain Britain, Shadowcat, and and Phoenix and by the way, calling her Shadowcat is, you know, very odd to me. The 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 story forgets that she has a superhero name more often than not. You know, oh yeah, I always Kitty. just call her Kitty. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um she's she's Kitty Pride. But 
Kitty and and Brian and Rachel are sort of um they're they're working with Di Thomas, who is a policeman friend of Captain Britain's, who is introduced in the most ham-fisted way of look, this is Di Thomas, he is our ally. Um that is that is <laughs> but like they're setting it up as though they're on a superhero adventure. It's where, you know, Kitty and Rachel demonstrate their powers to the other cops and they're in you know, and sort of here's where we are. But then a page later, it immediately turns into this horror comic, um, mm-hmm. which was shocking at the time because I'm, you know, I'm reading this and, and I'm not actually a big horror fan of comics or movies. I, I know a little bit, but all of a sudden, you know, the bad guy, you know, I know who the werewolves are from from Sword is Drawn, but did he just eat that dude? He totally just mm-hmm. ate that dude. And it's right. like, and that's just the end of that. Oh, wow. And, the, you know, it looks like he ate like he ate him. And then let's just go back to our action comic on the next page with Kitty. And, and it, it is a bizarre way of sort of, as I said, this is the training wheels for we're going to get to a point where we're just shifting genre from page to page to page regularly for 22 pages. I think they're trying to ease us into the kind of storytelling that Davis and Claremont want to do. Yeah, even as you're sort of describing these scenes, I'm looking at them now and I'm wondering about that question of us having sort of multiple genres within scenes and it's sort of doing that a little bit. And when I think about the scene with Day Thomas and and Brian and Kitty and Rachel um, dealing with the hostage crisis, you do have some instability even within that scene where, you know, you have Kitty being like, oh, gee whiz, Sarge, like, it's no problem. We'll handle this. We're superheroes. This isn't a big deal. And then him being like, what? You're like a teenager. I can't just send you into this situation. Wait, my hand passed through? this is insane and you know so you have that kind of disruption of she's existing in this one space he's existing in this other space of kind of like you know a quote-unquote realistic but not really realistic sort of you know Britain in which he's a cop doing his job (laughs) I mean he's right that he's not used to dealing with yeah he is right (laughs) and like yeah she definitely comes off a certain way and then yeah immediately you have that shift to to the the horrific scene of the werewolf eating eating this guy and I mean what I think is really interesting about that werewolf scene too the both both of the scenes in which the werewolves eat people in this issue but you get a lot of kind of sympathy or like pathos with the victims here which almost makes it like amps up the horror yeah and that's one of the ways that they're they're signaling these scene shifts and it's it's both of them right claremont's prose changes davis's illustration style changes both of them trading heavily mm-hmm. on cliches mm-hmm. but as soon as claremont goes into that narration where he's like his name is this he's a good Rainbow man yeah, he's dead <laughs> you know that guy's dead yeah. yeah it goes into a very kind of like mm-hmm. <laughs> like whatever shakespearean dramatic like yeah. tone there to sort of describe him as like you know like a, a good man a husband a father who now his life is no more and everything. <laughs> it's tomb of dracula yeah, yeah yeah for sure i was thinking exactly of tomb of dracula it is trying to i mean and tomb of dracula was you know it's it's doing the horror comic thing the 70s horror comic thing of trying to replicate 70s horror movies with you know you don't have actual movement so you you just use this ridiculous over-the-top purple prose in order to like sort of give you sympathy for this character whose entire lifespan is three panels right like we you know (laughs) like we're just trying to tell you everything there is to know about this man so that you know he's effectively a stereotype he's uh, he's the good cop that just appears in the horror movie in order to get killed Um, and the same thing will happen later when the werewolves eat that you know they, they eat a couple who are classic horror movie victims it's like oh look there's people you know there's a couple who are in love so they're dead you know yeah. <laughs> like, like like that's that's basically all they're giving us here what other genres do we think are at play here do we think romance as a genre is at play here or would we call it something else yes totally yeah. especially when we get to your favorite scene yeah <laughs> just when they take they go to the lighthouse right and, and just the the way that they create sexual tension there and i think it's more of an adult consciousness the knowledge that like megan and nightcrawler hanging out together in a house away from megan's partner like like, there's a really cool tension that surfaced there and i I know that's going to lead into what you want to talk about but i I love how subtle that is just in establishing a tone of sexual consciousness yeah yeah did you did you how old were you when you first read it andrew because i said i was like 14 yeah i think i would have been about 15 yeah, I was aware of it, which was odd because it's sort of um, in, in in a lesser comic, it would sort of just sort of it would almost be accidental. Right. But yeah. I feel like I feel like they are inviting you to ship these two characters. 
Yeah. Like for sure. Megan's got a pre-existing relationship that, you know, I wasn't all that aware of. I, I, you know, she's introduced as Captain Britain's girlfriend. So I know that she's got a relationship there and Nightcrawler last I saw him was involved with his sister because, but, um, <laughs> which we talked about in a previous episode, but like it is, it is, it's playful and nothing's really going on, but there's enough of an innuendo with the, Oh, is that a bed? That's not your bed. Exactly. You know, there's, there's enough of that going on to make you question it as a reader and make you sort of, you know, almost nothing's happened between the two of them yet you know stay tuned for future episodes but um almost nothing's happened between the two of them but it makes you sort of want to see where it's going it it, it feels naughty you know just for the need yeah. of this conversation and it juxtaposes megan's naivety with nightcrawler's sort of worldly sexual yeah. consciousness but again also his status as like a gentleman i guess we'd call him uh and that sort of dynamic just adds to the tension yeah and i'm looking at that one specific panel so they go to the lighthouse and the fourth panel it's the one where he's remarking on the bed and he's like got this like truly like devilish <laughs> smile that's like very knowing and she's kind of blushing and being like oh no and it's like yeah the tension there is like pretty pretty intense and it's just i mean because it's such a they sleep apparently on a big giant round bed you know yeah. the king-sized round bed that clearly is not for a person this is for a honeymoon suite in a hotel but this is where right. they sleep every night and kurt clearly is just having ideas like oh i would like to do things on that bed that's <laughs> and megan's well, aware of it yeah, yeah she's a, she's yeah. definitely aware that he's thinking that so well and then i mean the strange intimacy of she brings him right into that room and right by their incredibly strange honeymoon bed that is in this lighthouse with like no shame i think that's sort of significant too and sort of sort of like the easy intimacy between the characters and sort of her right. lack of thinking that that's an issue well that calls into you know the thing that i want to talk about and this is this is where we dovetail the nightcrawler thing you said andrew said called nightcrawler a gentlemanly a worldly gentleman Megan sure. <laughs> is the embodiment of it was not called out as such back in 1988, but the trope that the Internet today calls born sexy yesterday. She mm -hmm. is uh, she is a character who oozes sexuality, but in a weird childlike way. What's sexy about her is right. that she has the she has the personality and intelligence of a of, you know, of a rather precocious four year old. Right. Like like she's not an idiot, but she's she's got a very simplistic, happy and, you know, rose colored ideology about her. She doesn't know a lot of random things. She specifically doesn't wear shoes just to make her seem more childlike. Everything about her is innocent and sweet. And therefore, she reads, you know, because of the way we, we read women, she's an adult woman who is innocent and sweet and therefore reads as probably the most sexual character in the book. Plus, that's how Brian treats her, which helps, too, you know, but not so much in this issue, I guess. Yeah, there's the idea of um, Richard Reynolds concept of virginal sexuality in the superheroine, mm -hmm. which is basically just like the idea that people like to see sexy characters, but they're also threatened by the concept of adult sexuality. So having a sexy character who seemingly like at least in her outward actions, doesn't seem to know what sex is, doesn't register sexual tension, um, in theory gets around that. And it's an uncomfortable notion in a lot of ways, but it's something mm -hmm. that's that's certainly in comics for um, at even least though she the doesn't act like it. Even though she doesn't act like it, though, Megan is very aware um, sexually. Even here, where we don't see much of it, even here, she says that bed's not for you. She knows what Nightcrawler is thinking, right? Like she yeah, is yeah. very aware of it. And it would be easy to sort of pass off as just sort of, a, oh, I'm just reading things into it, except that that's clearly not what's going on, which becomes evident in their bathroom scene later. Yeah. And I mean, I do think it's important that it's pretty darn clear that they're like having sex with each other because I mean that Brian and Megan are actually adultly having sex with each other because right. that hadn't been super common to overtly suggest that in superhero comics up to this point. I mean, right. Andrew, you've written wonderfully on Claremont run about the about the Jean Grey, um, Scott Summers relationship. So Phoenix and, and Cyclops relationship and how important it is when they finally have like their canonical physical union. So to just have 
guilt-free premarital sex on your round bed yeah. in the lighthouse is mm-hmm. like very sexually liberating to compared to like a lot of sexual portrayals even within x-men comics yeah what year was the um the teen titan scene with nightwing and starfire in bed that got brutally censored it was around it, it this time right a little earlier not as censored as people remember it being so there are actually a couple of them i've written about this a bunch this oh, is cool. literally in my dissertation yeah. so um so it happened it happens gradually to the one that everybody remembers specifically is in 1986 i believe it's just pro just post crisis but it happens before then sort of anecdotally in like 84 or 85 and it's sort of it's very much a gradual you see them all living at the um at titan's tower Mm -hmm. and it's very clear eventually that oh of course dick and Corey live in the same in the same room and Corey frequently very obviously sleeps naked like whenever whenever they all have to run out she you explicitly see her putting on a robe so there so the one that people by the time it happens it's not as big a deal in titans also titans was direct sales only by that point by the time the one that matters happens so it wasn't as explicitly shocking because it happened gradual gradually where wolfman and perez like sort of build to it Mm -hmm. but in retrospect people have sort of been like oh wow that was so much and you know and wolfman and perez have both talked about no we thought it was natural dick is like 22 years old here (laughs) (laughs) you know and and Corey is you know not human but she's clearly an adult as well you know so you know this is just something that people are doing it's the 80s man you know like he he very much because what's more shocking um around that time is that's is when the judas contract happens it's the sexuality of tara in that comic which um that was the bigger deal at that Mm. at that point because she was 15 whereas dick is uh dick is a grown man people remember him as robin but he's a he's in a clear adult by the time that happens right oh that's interesting thanks so much for that context Mm -hmm. yeah so i mean it's just well okay do let's just talk about this bat scene because you guys keep like trying to like avoid talking about it because you know that i want to talk about it (laughs) so let's just talk about it and we can get back to some of the to some of the genre stuff if it comes up but um okay so this bat scene so (laughs) so what matters to me about this scene it matters to me for a number of reasons i mean one of the things i do really like about excalibur is that it has a little bit not a little bit like a lot of sort of an intentional sort of equal opportunity exploitation vibe to it you know everybody's very sexy in this comic and it's making a very deliberate choice in this comic and i want to talk about sort of the alan davis's character stylings and stuff as well to make nightcrawler very sexy and he'd been a sexy character before when i was saying there are two scenes with him in the bath um there's Mm -hmm. a very memorable sexy scene involving him and a bamf doll from the paul smith chris claremont (laughs) run of Mm x-men which leads to him being in a hot tub with his girlfriend slash foster sister complicated amanda (laughs) and then teleporting around the city naked and then in the 1985 um, Dave Cochran miniseries, which I discussed in our episode zero a little bit. That's a very sexy series as well. So he'd been, he'd had that kind of vibe before, but so this bathtub scene, if you compare it to kind of the way other monsters within the Marvel universe are desexualized for the most part, mm-hmm. um, it's a very unusual depiction of a monster character in this universe. And I mean, an obvious counterpoint would be like Beast, especially because he's in the X-Men franchise as well, also an Avenger during this time, but he had become a very kind of fun-loving flirtatious romantic character around this time as well but usually that would be played for kind of laughs and humor a possible exception is Anna Senti's Beauty and the Beast miniseries but even then the sexual content was largely metaphorical and not super kind of mm-hmm. explicit in any way whereas here you have Nightcrawler in the bath it's drawn very naturalistically the water is very low he is like very close to being naked and something about the naturalism of that combined with the character's monstrousness I would argue makes the character sort of accessible in a way that is very unusual you're like sort of brought into this intimate domestic space with this character in this very naturalistic way that i think is part of what makes this scene so like sexy but then of course you have like the monstrous elements of him too right he takes the hot chocolate from megan and then dives into the bath and is holding the hot chocolate with his tail which is okay we're gonna end up talking about like tail imagery and things um throughout this podcast i'm assuming because it is a very complicated symbol in a lot of ways i would Mm -hmm. argue that it can be a very sensual symbol in some ways obviously a phallic symbol as well 
So there's a lot going on in that scene. And definitely in terms of my memory of this issue, it was definitely the scene that I remembered the most. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. Like, did the scene stand out to either of you, I suppose, as being sort of unusual or memorable? Like, not in a way that you have to be in love with Nightcrawler, but just like in a way that you were just like, well, that sure was a scene. It is a a cheesecake. I was almost called it a photo, but it's a cheesecake painting, drawing. Um, It is very Mm -hmm. intentionally, not only, I mean, everything that you said, plus he is depicted as a near perfect physical specimen. You know, there's so much attention to detail of his muscles in this picture you talked about how low the water is it is this is all but a it's something that could appear in a playgirl layout right like he Mm -hmm. he is ever so barely underwater just so you can't see his penis Mm -hmm. just so you bear so you barely can't because it's almost saying we want you to know for sure that he is naked yes we realize everyone in a bathtub is naked but we want you to really really understand that he is naked when megan uh just kind of wanders into the room in the next panel so they're definitely trying to give you get you to think of Nightcrawler as a sexual being and not as just a silly as a silly teddy bear goofball, which in some ways he'd become an X-Men. Yeah. And even just uh, like, I mean, it is really significant the way it's encouraging you to think about his penis. I mean, by cutting the water that low and mm-hmm. like really like sort of encouraging you to think about the fact that there is something to hide that actually matters for monster characters. I mean, I have written about the presence and absence of the Vision's penis and the very deliberate move that happened right around this time to make it clear that the vision didn't have a penis which mm-hmm. i have argued sort of is a way of taking away some of the queer instabilities of a character like that who mm-hmm. you know can represent gender in a lot of different ways in part because of his non-humanness right so mm-hmm. a character like this like nightcrawler who's this monstrous character who you know is not a human character in terms of his physical appearance you know human like but definitely like inhuman in a lot of ways to suggest that that character does have a sexuality and not dehumanize the character and not desexualize the character there's like something that can be very destabilizing there you know in general but especially within that genre that tends to deny those types of possibilities and gazes yeah i, I like the idea of um like code switching in the scene yeah because megan comes in and she specifically references dynasty yeah and and says that you know joan collins never seemed to mind when people intrude on her bathtub and and to me that sort of sets up nightcrawler's perspective he's got this choice of like participating in this soap opera like sex fantasy uh, Mm -hmm. that that megan is directly sort of laying out for him or uh, again falling back onto reality or the equivalent of reality for kurt in this bizarre superhero universe um so i i liked how that whole fantasy becomes um directly connected to something we can all kind of envision sort of like mm-hmm. megan saying this comic could become dynasty if we wanted mm-hmm. to and, and kurt mm-hmm. is the one who gets to choose and, oh that's neat i like that well so how serious is she and that's what this is one of the problems where i, where I talked about megan having the the born sexy yesterday but not quite issue right because she's got this childlike innocence about her which makes her read as overly sexual for all the reasons that andrew said before but these two panels right here where where she walks in she knows he's in the bathtub he's only in there because he's in the bathtub she knows what she's doing and she is not even though i said she's got like the personality of a four-year-old she's not a four a four-year-old her bed is messy on the previous you know scene because she just had sex this morning we know that you know like she and she it's it's established several times throughout this 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 issue that she is a television addict. She watches Dynasty. She understands what affairs are. You know, she's not she's not stupid. Um, and she is kind of inviting. I mean, now I don't know if she's just being flirtatious or she's playing into the idea of her innocence for Kurt's benefit as well as for the audience's. But she knows that she is intruding on what's supposed to be a private moment. She makes a joke about it, but she knows better. And like she does so because she wants to so are we supposed to read her as being so naive that she doesn't know or is she or are we supposed to read her like i do where she knows she's perceived that way so she's going to use it to her advantage like does she want to sleep with kurt at that point 
or is she just like enjoying flirting with him because it makes him uncomfortable yeah i think like questions of sort of her sexual agency are going to be something that we end up returning to especially in sort of these first five issues in which Mm -hmm. sort of the love triangle gets established i really am not sure how i read her involvement in this scene i think it's deliberately kind of evading certain questions related to her agency i mean Mm -hmm. her agency is expressed in the fact that she's the one opening the door and looking at him inviting and inviting a female gaze in that respect right and i mean the code switching that andrew is talking about is definitely going on even in the fact that like megan puts him in the joan collins role right (laughs) Right. which is like interesting and then he's the one in the next scene who's coming out of the bath like in the short robe which like whose robe is that is it megan's robe i mean it can't possibly be brian's robe. no that that wouldn't fit around brian's head (laughs) i know so so that's like something and then you know drying his hair and stuff and just like walking around like this with his mug of hot cocoa while she's watching tv Mm -hmm. so i mean yeah i don't know like i mean i think that there's an argument to be made that it almost could be read as diminishing his sexuality because she's being read as not being aware of it but that doesn't really make sense with the scene before and their interaction over the bed so like yeah it's Mm -hmm. i'm not really sure okay so i'm probably revealing naivety and ignorance here i a hundred percent read megan as naive even in the bed scene i thought in her mind she's looking at the bed that kurt's looking at and thinking oh he wants to have a nap in there really yeah which might be adorable (laughs) and sad of me that's how i I read it it doesn't say right it doesn't say i mean for me it's when she says that she's like uh pardon the clutter i had to put um i had to put boxes up here and it's like no because there's nothing about her relationship with brian particularly given how you know what i know now what i didn't know reading then but how she became pretty in the first place but there's nothing about her relationship with brian that leads me to believe that they are not a sexually active couple oh completely agree right so so clearly she knows what sex is and and with the disheveled bed you know they've got this beautiful honeymoon bed but the you know the covers are all messed up and everything i think we're supposed to read it as they had sex like recently oh and i i I can agree to that too i just don't think she recognized is the sexual potential in her relationship with Kurt the way Kurt's reading it in that scene huh. yeah. okay. I, I could I could accept that reading of it based on the way she kind of behaves around him sort of in future issues too where like she really seems like she's leading him on and doesn't seem aware of that yeah yeah no I that that, that was my interpretation again I'm an adorable naive Canadian I, man. I, I don't. I don't want to uh, see. I don't want to give away future episodes, but I know we'll come back to this. Like <laughs> yeah, it, we're, okay. we're this is going to be a discussion it. that comes up again and again between the. Well, I was going to say the two of them, but really the three of them uh, or four of them, given how what's going to happen later. <laughs> Sticking with the theme of sex and romance, um, mm-hmm. what do we make about the Brian Corgi relationship yeah, as it that's is why introduced I said four of them. in this yeah. issue? <laughs> yeah, is this another veering into romance that we have here? What is sort of the nature of this scene? Yeah. Do we see it as similar to the, I mean, it sort of parallels the Kurt Megan scene. They're not quite back to back, but I think that they're sort of thematically paralleled. What's going on in this scene? And maybe we should talk a little bit about the history of this character a little bit because it is confusing and complicated. That's an, I, because I didn't know anything about her when I read this the first time. So that's more on, that's more on Andrew. I do now. I've read. I've read now, but at the time, I would have known nothing other than oh, pretty, bro- pretty blonde lady. Uh, yeah, I guess that's important. I don't think Who's you need to know that much? Why is she newly a blonde, and why does this matter? Right. Yeah, so she's she's just his girlfriend character. She shows up in some old Captain Britain comics as a brunette. Um, she's kind of dull. <laughs> I would say uninteresting. So I, I think the idea is she's there to specifically define the relationship between Brian and Megan, right? Through that contrast. And then of course she also has that effect of allowing in the, the Saturnine things that we'll be talking about later on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think having her come in with a, a fresh haircut that Brian is obviously enamored with when he talks about it, I think that's to establish that initial temptation and to again, create that contrast between a very realistic, grounded, highly intelligent adult relationship with Brian uh, versus whatever it is that brian has going on with megan she's like designed to be a threat to that relationship uh and i think it's through that threat that we really get a sense of to me like how toxic brian's relationship to megan really is Mm, yeah and she's definitely set up to be a contrast thematically with megan in terms of she's introduced as the quintessential beautiful 80s business lady right yeah like mm -hmm. she's got a flowy pleated skirt with the big shoulder pads double-breasted white jacket (laughs) like there's just a lot going on just even in the visual representation of courtney Mm -hmm. in the scene and like the the sort of romance and and soap opera context of this scene as well you know being in this shiny fancy like 1980s bank right Mm -hmm. yeah and she mirrors brian in the scene too right 
right? In terms of Brian and his dapper, upper class, rich, British suit. Uh, that's a world that Megan knows nothing about and has nothing to offer to. So it again puts her at a disadvantage. They are intellectual peers as well. The, the, you know, Brian and Courtney right. talk to each other, talk to each other in a very, I should I said intellectual, but intellectual and class, right? This is the conversation yeah. that could happen at, at this bank or could happen at the yacht club. And because that's the kind of people they are. They are definitely country country club you know upper class people and so this is one where where i immediately you know even back then definitely read this as a threat right like she Mm -hmm. is put there to be at this point with just this first issue it's like oh you're going to be trouble you know you're going to be trouble for this relationship i end up feeling differently about her later actually but um yes i i I end up i i I like courtney way better than i like brian (laughs) but 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 i didn't know that i didn't know that at this point because again i know very little about Captain Britain as I'm reading this in 1988 other than his you know sort of anecdotally he's I guess he's the British Captain America I guess you know like that's that's where I was with him so he so she shows up and you know she shows up as the temptress right she's got her platinum blonde hair which clearly is supposed to read as sexy and you know and she's flirty she's flirty with him in a way that I don't think can possibly be read innocently even though nothing bad happens here nothing remotely as you know sort of problematic or or questionable in a relationship as anything that went on with Kurt and Megan but right. but I feel better for them than I do for for Brian and Courtney here yeah and those scenes juxtapose each other beautifully too right mm-hmm. they just make the the tension amp up even more in contrast mm-hmm. and one more kind of sexual thing that I wanted to talk about was the interaction between well the multiple interactions between Rachel and Nigel Frobisher and I'm honestly asking your opinion on why these scenes are here I get that we're establishing that Nigel is like an asshole is yeah. that the only purpose I mean to have Rachel sexually harassed twice in this opening issue by Nigel, why are these scenes here? Well, are they maybe there to just establish Rachel's again evolution as a character? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and again, her her agency and power and um, her capacity to control the manner in which she's perceived. So Nigel reads so much i mean today in 2021 we'd say toxic masculinity right like we right. didn't have that term 30 years ago and i so i don't know I, reading it back then you knew he was the bad guy it was no it was very clear that he shows up and he's like oh you're a scumbag go away you douchey asshole like that's that's like how you're supposed to read read him i don't need that i don't know that it needs to happen twice other than it happens twice so that you know unlike random other people he's not incidental he is going to become an important character. Like, oh, you're here twice. Nothing comes of it. So I guess I should pay attention to you. Mm-hmm. But but we do learn so much about we we learn nothing about him other than the fact that he's a jerk. But I think what we <laughs> learn about what we learn, I mean, at least not here. What we learn about Rachel is, I mean, we're we're focusing a lot on the sex of this issue, but I think a lot of this is the sexuality of it. Because the last time we saw Rachel, other than the fact that you know she she was going to get a makeover in in X-Men comics, as we talked about, but her her standard clothing was just like a ripoff of flash dance that's what she was wearing all the time she she wandered around in a leotard and leg warmers because mm-hmm. that was 80s to um i guess john ramita jr was probably drawing those but that was her look it was very much a we stole this from a movie that was popular for one year and she wore it for six so now she's suddenly in this place where in contrast to you know we talked about the contrast of three different femininities that megan kitty and rachel represent and Mm -hmm. rec and rachel has come back from mojo world with this embracing of punk culture she's wandering around in leather and a tiny miniskirt that's not how she dressed when she left yeah i mean i guess i'm interested in this scene as a representation of some of the themes that we talked about with rachel in the last episode like the way she's sexual presence and absence the way she sort of you know invites sexualized gazes and yet forestalls those as well the way she conveys Mm -hmm. a certain type of untouchability and like i mean who would want to be touched by this horrible sexual harasser rapey guy like that's not on her right but um but at the same time i'm curious about some of the ways that this scene particularly this the scene in the bank in the office between rachel and nigel which comes right before the scene with brian and courtney parallels 
either that scene or the scene with Kurt and Megan. I mean, I'm looking at it right now, and there's this one panel at the bottom of the Rachel and Nigel page on the bottom left, where you have this image of Nigel leaning over Rachel's shoulder and giving this kind of very devilish kind of smile, and Rachel just giving this like disgusted, angry, furious face. Other than Rachel's response, it's very similar to the framing and the representation of Kurt looking over Megan's shoulder when they encounter the round bed for the first time. And I was Hmm. wondering if there was kind of any kind of parallel or kind of like theme being established here about what is kind of sexy flirting, what is bad flirting, you know, what is the nature of consent within this world? And I think that those are questions that we're going to end up coming back to quite a few times. Yeah, I can see that. And they are page after each other too. I I never noticed that before, but they are, it's literally the next page. Because I mean, it's a very sort of sexually accessible book in a lot of ways, I would argue. And yet it's also sort of making these statements about like what's good sexy and what's bad sexy, which I think is interesting. We've talked a lot about sex, (laughs) which is kind of inevitable since it's one of my interests and it's one of like, well, it's both of you both have that as an interest in a lot of your work. But um, let's talk about, well, there's so, I'm not sure which thing would be the best to talk about, but we haven't really talked about Alan Davis yet in terms of this being an origins issue and in terms of him still working out sort of the styling of some of these characters. And I don't know if both of you thought that Mm -hmm. might be an interesting thing to talk about. Like Alan Davis had only co-created one of these characters in Megan. The other characters Mm -hmm. had been created by other people. And although he became very much an artist associated with the Captain Britain comics, he didn't create Captain Britain. And for a lot of these characters, this is only his second time drawing them, right? Did you, what do you feel about Davis in terms of the ways that he's putting his stamp on these characters? And I mean, the redesign of Rachel might be one of those. Do we see that at play in in some of the other characters as well? Him putting his specific stamp on these characters and what that looks like? Yes. Um, I'm wondering if maybe Mav wanted to start us out with like discussing that iconic cover that you were working with on those awesome animations. Yeah. uh, Well, yeah. The the YouTube version of our show. You're talking about the 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 issue. The sword is drawn. No, sorry. The issue one cover where they're where they're um they're all standing there and it really is a let me introduce you to the team and here's how i see them and and we talked a little bit about this on 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 issue 0 he he has he has a visual distinctiveness that in his visual language of captain britain is not only a bodybuilder build but he's just physically large and imposing more so than any human being should be he look he dwarfs them in size even when he's you know it's very obvious in this where when he's in his regular civilian clothes yeah. and then you see him next to courtney it's just mm-hmm. like oh wow this guy is massive Right. And then you compare that with Kurt, who is lithe and, you know, sort of, but more muscular than I think anybody had really drawn Kurt up until this point. You have Megan, who is just ripped off the cover of a Cosmopolitan magazine, like entirely. And then you have Phoenix with her. I keep calling it the punk aesthetic. I I have no idea how else to say that other than like, that's that's where I feel like he got the, the feeling. And then what was interesting to me was how we haven't talked much about Kitty, but Kitty goes from being very much drawn as a beanpole character in most of her X-Men days to where she looks like a legitimate 15-year-old girl trying to figure herself out. And and so I think his art works very well to sort of establish their personalities. Um, this is, you have to understand, this is 1988. We're coming into a world where the, the emerging comic artists at Marvel are beginning to become what, who would later become the Image 5. Right. You're, you're getting into the world where, where Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, Tom, um, Todd McFarlane and Silvestri and v- Valentino, uh, Jay Lee, and so more than five, but like, and they didn't all go to the image, but the, but the Art Adams school is very much taking over. And then that's like this hyper-realistic feel. Davis is more cartoony than that, but has this weird aesthetic where you can read the personalities of each character based on how they're drawn. Like Brian mm-hmm. looks like a like a jock. He looks like a, he, he looks like a, you know, the guy who would be the bad guy in any 80s sex comedy movie <laughs> you know he's yeah. very fond and you know like that's who he is right yeah and i love the way it's worked into so many aspects of sort of the character posing and movement as well you know you think mm-hmm. about the way sort of megan moves through space sort of standing on the tips of her toes and always looking sort of very you know cute and flirtatious but in that innocent way that we've talked about right and mm-hmm. the way the way brian moves through the space he's often very sort of solid right and like kitty has that like exuberance to the way she moves through space in mm-hmm. this comic and Rachel has that very 
standoffish kind of sort of powerful kind of stiffness mm-hmm. almost to a lot of her and we even see that sort of in the in the pose that she's making on the front of this issue where her shoulders or sorry in the cover of this issue rather where her shoulders are very square and her fists are closed mm-hmm. and you know she's she's tensed effectively right Look and then i can't touch. say I, I can't yeah exactly and i can't say enough about how much i love his character styling of kurt and i think that's something we can sort of debate about what that adds or takes away from kurt's character because he's made more traditionally masculine in some ways in alan davis's mm-hmm. styling which i know Andrew has feelings about that in terms of perhaps minimizing aspects of the queerness of the character, but it maybe is something we'll come back to. But I like the things that he does with Kurt's body specifically. There's like when he's walking down the stairs, he has like his toes sort of curling all the way over the stairs because, you know, Mm -hmm. he can sort of use his feet as hands as well. There's like one where he's leaning against a counter and he's like scratching his like ear with his tail. There's just so many little things like that throughout that he's really trying to come up with a visual language for these characters that I just love Mm -hmm. so much. Yeah. On the cover, I do like um, how Nightcrawler is in his, let's call it demonic squat, but he he looks so (laughs) poised and relaxed in a way that he normally doesn't when he's in that position. I really like that. It's a natural, this this is underscored by the text, but it's uh, the in the bathtub panel that we talked about, I, we didn't talk about what he says. Kurt makes a, makes a very specific allusion to the fact that his favorite thing about being in Britain is the larger bathtubs because they allow him to stretch out. And it, it, it is, he calls attention to his body in the language as it's drawn. And I think that is that is part of that, you know, the confidence in the you know subtle sexuality still I'd, I'd say do you want to kind of end with a bit of a discussion about what kitty gets up to in this issue because i think that will lead well into our next episode mm-hmm. in which she is quite sensual and i want to talk about her um quite extensively in that issue but what is she like in this issue what do we kind of learn about kitty how does it extend from some of the things that we saw in 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 sword is drawn how is it different what is her kind of role in the team here well i think we, we get a lot of characters remarking on her abilities which i think is mm-hmm. kind of cool um mm-hmm. I, I like that she She's using her intellect and intelligence and leadership independently. The Mm. only problem being that it goes poorly, right? (laughs) You know what I mean? She she doesn't exactly pull it off. But even just in that bank scene with her and Rachel, she calls her, this is my partner. And and they go and they do this super heroic heist thing together. She acts calmly and maturely and, again, really independently compared to how she normally operates in X-Men. And um, smartly for her power use. She doesn't punch anybody. She's like, my power is not offensive, so how am I going to win this fight? I'm going to pretend I'm a... I mean, why can't she just be a superhero? Who knows? But she's going to pretend she's a guy. It, it comes across as a weird but ingenious plan. Right. Yeah, she's thinking through things throughout this issue. And although I think it's really representative of the character in the sense that she is this very intelligent character who uses her powers creatively. She's a character who's great at planning. And yet she's a character who's also sort of limited by her immaturity as well, right? She doesn't mm-hmm. make the right choices here with all of her abilities in part as a function of her immaturity. We're just about out of time. But um, is there anything that we should have talked about that we haven't talked about that you're sort of dying to talk about? Just... With Kitty, she she doesn't play into the main story because she's off on her own here. But I do think that she is interesting in that we do see a we see her. I mean, part of it's her sexuality, but more it's also just her doubting. She doubts her sexuality. She doubts her place on the team. She doubts what she's mm-hmm. doing in the world. Um, Brian comments, "Wow, you're you're a genius. You're just as smart as I was when I was that when I was your age." Ha ha ha. Um, she's way smarter. But um, yeah. but he said, <laughs> but. but but she but she's not sure who she is or where she is in this world and in that way i think she very much came across as like there's not much to say about her she's exactly 15 right she is exactly right. stuck in this world of i guess i'm kind of a grown up but kind of not let me figure this out and yeah she's going to go off and you know she doesn't tell anybody what she's doing because they'll say no even though she's decided that this is the best plan you know so mm-hmm. it's 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 believable and i think i mean next issue is going to be all about kitty so but it, but it's believable in the way in which she is trying to well i'm, I'm gonna figure out what i'm gonna do with my the rest of my life today yeah i really yeah. like the contrast to rachel i almost said ray because mm-hmm. like we're friends now uh, <laughs> <laughs> her contrast to rachel um I, I think that's one of the defining attributes of kitty in excalibur is her mm-hmm. sort of sudden out of nowhere i want to be just like rachel thing mm-hmm. uh, and we get that sort of exhibited very directly in her literally dyeing her hair to look like rachel and impersonating yeah. rachel and that kind of stuff so we're establishing that effectively here but she also you mentioned i was gonna say she also starts to notice that it doesn't work right she says um, yeah yeah she says she 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 is immediately i'll just you 
know, I'll just wear Rachel's clothing. I'll put henna in my hair. And then all of a sudden she's commenting on the fact that how does anybody walk in these heels, which are a convention of superhero comics. Women wear, wear six inch heels all the time, but Kitty doesn't, at least not in Excalibur. And Rachel, and she is immediately uncomfortable with it. She wear, you know, she has to wear Ray, Rachel's oversized jacket, which I love that. I love that as tight as the clothing is, the, the clothing works on her, but the jacket is way too big on her because Rachel's mm -hmm. four inches taller. She's got to wear that because I think she doesn't feel comfortable wandering around in spandex despite having been a superhero for the last three years yeah, yeah and you mentioned you mentioned kurt commenting on his own body and drawing attention to it and she does something similar right where she talks about the tight both the heels but also the tightness of rachel's costume and how does anybody sort of wear this or walk around in this and i, I really liked that as sort of a mm -hmm. window into her interiority and subjectivity yeah related to that i think what we're getting here is specifically the way that kitty apprentices rachel is almost in terms of sexuality and the idea mm -hmm. that a 15 year old would be sexual I do not like, and Excalibur is guilty of that in a lot of ways. But the yeah, idea we're, that we're going to talk about that next issue for sure. Yeah, yeah. But the idea that you would cultivate that interior sexual consciousness of a fifteen-year-old—that's mm -hmm. deeply relatable. I, I think mm -hmm. that really grounds her as a character, and I think it's mm -hmm. a cool element to introduce here. A little weird that it comes in through Rachel, but we'll also talk about, I'm sure, that mm -hmm. relationship and the sexual undertones within it. And we'll end up seeing sort of an interesting play between those two characters in terms of Kitty's assumption of Rachel's confidence, but Rachel actually mm -hmm. has a ton. Of of insecurity about so yeah, many things right. and her mm -hmm. performance of confidence can actually be read as extending from insecurity in some ways mm -hmm. but um yeah we're definitely going to talk about the evolution of that relationship and some of the queer subtext of that relationship um in terms of we already see in this issue sort of the depth of the bond at least from rachel's perspective um mm -hmm. but we're definitely going to see that playing out more in the next issue as well my king i couldn't do it excalibur cannot be lost other men do as i command one day, the king will come, and the sword will rise again. I think we'll leave it there. We've talked for about an hour and about 20 minutes of that. Seems like it was about Nightcrawler in the bathtub. So I'm sorry, Andon, or you're welcome. But next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode two, in which we will be discussing the continuation of today's storyline in Excalibur number two. So in issue two, we will also have the start of the Excalibur letters page called Sword Strokes. Yes, that is the actual name of the letters page. Did we mention that this is a sexy series? So starting next week, we're going to be spotlighting some memorable letters as well. In the meantime if you liked what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for future episodes we're open to that let us know you can reach us via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we'll be posting daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you Andrew and Matt for another fabulous conversation thank you for listening and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song play us out 